Hello and welcome to another episode of Vagabond Actors Podcast, where we discuss all things acting, we focus on the craft, mindset, and we also get into the business side of things, and pretty much everything in between. My name is Gary Condes, and I'm talking to you from London, and as always, I'm joined by my fellow actors and acting teachers and coaches, Brian Casp, who is based in Prague. Hello, Brian. How are you doing this week? Hey, Gary. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. You know, soldiering on, best foot forward, all that stuff. Awesome. I love it. And we also have Andrea Helen, who is based in Mallorca. Hello, Andrea. How are you today? Hi, guys. I'm good. Soldiering on, definitely. The sun has been shining. Makes everything easier for me. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Lucky. Yes. You've got the lucky break over there in terms of weather. you got Brian, who's mid-European, Central European, who's like cold, snowy, rainy, and then you've got us in the UK, which is just rain and mm-hmm. rain and mm-hmm. more rain. So you got it lucky over there. Yeah. We seem to be getting into a lot of weather-related conversations (laughs) these days, so let's move it on swiftly. Now, we've got a very exciting and interesting guest interview this week, and it is my absolute pleasure to introduce and welcome the actress Stacey Martin. Hello, Stacey. Welcome. Hello. Thank you, Gary. What an introduction. (laughs) Well, I do try, and it's a, a huge welcome to you from the podcast team here at Vagabond Actors, and Thanks very much for giving up your time to join us and talk to us. No, of course. I love podcasts and I love podcasts about my job as well. It keeps me inspired and I really love hearing you three talk about all the craft and the different people you've interviewed. So I'm really happy to join you. Fantastic. Now, for our listeners out there, just a quick intro. Stacey's first ever film role was the lead in Lars von Trier's mammoth two-part movie, Nymphomaniac. And since then, she's carved out a pretty unique and interesting career, jumping between art house, indie and mainstream films, English speaking in Hollywood and in Europe, but also French speaking films in France. So as well as Nymphomaniac, Stacey's worked on major film and TV productions, including Ridley Scott's All the Money in the World, Ben Wheatley's High Rise, and more recently, Brady Corbett's Vox Lux alongside Natalie Portman. And she's presently can be seen in a film called Archive, which has just been released, and you can stream it down on Amazon, I think, and also the BBC TV series The Serpent, which has just recently finished. So you'll be able to get that on iPlayer. So we have got loads to get into, and along with Andrea and Brian, I'm really looking forward to discussing Stacey's work and her journey. But before we do, what we normally do is we usually have a quick check-in and catch-up with what we've been up to since we last spoke, work-wise or regarding our creative endeavours. So who wants to kick this off? Brian, what have you been up to this week? So we had a conversation a few weeks back with Daniel Johnson about showreels. And I subsequently asked him if he could write some scenes for me to get at some character performances that I haven't necessarily been cast in, in in major projects. And so he, this week, sent back some scenes and I read them and I think they're great. And so I'm just working now on finding a mini crew to produce them and to get them shot and edited and color graded and all that stuff and into my showreel. So it's really cool. He wrote some interesting stuff, stuff that I wouldn't have come up with. One of the characters is a dad who is a recovering alcoholic and is trying to make amends with his daughter. And, you know, she's not quite ready to make amends. And so there's a vulnerability there in the dad. And the other scene is a politician who has 
kind of been caught with his pants down and has been accused of having an inappropriate affair with one of his interns. And so it's a conversation between him and his wife about that. So they're interesting scenes and it's stuff that I don't have on my show reel. So I, I'm excited to delve into it. Great That's great stuff. stuff. And both yeah. are with women then. Yeah, he wrote both of them with mm-hmm. women. The father-daughter obviously is a different mm-hmm. age. Mm -hmm. And I'll see about the casting of the wife. I might make it, if I can find someone who's maybe a different race, that would be good. Mm -hmm. And I'm also excited to do it because it's giving me an opportunity to try and do a little bit of production and see how putting together Mm -hmm. a little film shoot works, trying to reach out to friends who do sound and reach out to friends who are camera people and try and get a good result there so that, that's also a nice challenge sounds like you've been really busy and uh and this is uh, one of the things we talk about in the podcast is the business side of things and how you can upgrade or how you can continue to keep busy with marketing yourself and getting the appropriate stuff out and updating and always having something to do as an actor yeah there's always plenty to do great mm-hmm. stuff yeah andrea what have you been up yes. to over there on the sunny island Oh, I think I need to reach out to Daniel. Brian, I really like that those scenes uh, present some moral dilemmas for you. I think that will be Mm -hmm. very, very fun for you to explore. I think so too. Yeah. I have been teaching mostly, Zoom teaching with my favorite Munich school, the Zerboni Schule. And uh, it's been really interesting. We're kind of getting deeper into it, which has been the plan, of course. We started doing some work that in the Meisner approach, we take on with advanced actors, the Spoon River Mm -hmm. Anthology work. We've talked about it a little bit, I think, in our episode about monologues. And it's really an approach to getting at how to treat speeches or storytelling in a scene. And so I've brought an approach that we normally use on stage And I'm trying it in Zoom, so there's a little bit of an experimental element to it. And we did it yesterday, and I think their minds were a little bit blown, and there were all sorts Mm -hmm. of interesting discoveries. So I'm having a lot of fun. Fantastic. And you're continuing your expansion into your uh, teaching network over there? Yes, exactly. And um, the... Uh, Mallorca Film Institute colleagues of mine, we're talking about getting some classes up and running here as soon as it makes, you know, logistical sense. Fantastic. Great stuff. Busy, busy, busy. Stacey, how about you? What have you been up to this week work-wise or in terms of your creative endeavors? I have been actually slowly coming back into work, which has been really nice and sort of a nice awakening to a long period of what felt like a hibernation and just finding a sense of routine again which I've missed from set life. I really love a routine and I've decided to install one in my life and it's helping a lot. I'm reading, I'm waking up early and I think it's making me more inspired and more aware of what I can do during a lockdown with my work and it's been quite nice. It's been a good discovery. Yeah, I suppose when you're out and about and on set a lot and working, you know, you miss those simple pleasures, I suppose. You're reading so much in preparing for your work that it must feel like a bit of a luxury to be able to read something of your choice. Yeah, it's quite strange, but it's also very liberating in a way to not have any attachment to a job or anything pressurized. I think I forget a lot of the time to read for pleasure, which sounds insane and really (laughs) depressing as I say it, but it's true. And I've just been reading this book about 
Ariane Mushkin, and it's just so fascinating. She was a well, she's a theatre director, and, and she's worked for so many years with a lot of the same actors. And her whole ethos of work is just for me quite mind blowing. And I've had this book for about probably four or five years, and I've always wanted to read it, and I've just picked it up. So. I've had a good week. What country is this director from? Where are they based? She's French. I'll say it with an English accent. That might help. Ariane Mushkin, which is A-R-I-N-A-N-E-M-N-O-U-C-H-K-I-N-E. Fantastic. Mushkin, I've never heard of her, so I'm going to look that up. I've already got questions. Can I ask a question now? I know <laughs> you haven't said your thing that you've done. That's all right. But just because you talked about it, Stacey, like it's such a transition, isn't it? From when you're working on a job, how so much of your day is planned out for you. I mean, not that you have to be busy all day, but they're going to pick you up at a certain time. You know that you're going to have to shoot a certain number of scenes that day. And you might know that, oh, I, tomorrow I have a day off, but I have to prepare for the next day. And so there's a certain structure that comes into place when you're working. And how do you find generally the transition between that kind of structure when you're working or the kind of, it doesn't even feel like real life when you're shooting something. It's like mm. an alternate reality. And then coming back into your regular life where you might not have that kind of structure. Right. Yeah. In all honesty, the transitioning from work to home is very, very difficult and something that I struggle constantly because it's never, it's just never the same. Because the film sets are always different. It's in a different location. I have a different experience. And I really struggle suddenly coming home and not having that sense of purpose and not having, not seeing the same people every day. It's very, it can be quite brutal. I've sort of very selfishly got a dog a year and a <laughs> half and as silly and um, extravagant that may seem and as cliche as it could be that installed a strong sense of routine because I have to yeah. take him out and I have to feed him so it's things like that that have slowly helped me but it's I'm not very good with transitions I love a right. schedule I love knowing what's going to happen but I'm terrible when it's just all changing so you've created something of a schedule for yourself now. Do you feel like if that's something that you can keep up, even when you're off shooting somewhere in an exotic location, that can be kind of a home base. And then that transition going back into your non-work life might kind of feel more like a steady beat. Definitely, because it's also a question of what do I enjoy doing for myself and for my work? And that's what's so important is I work on set and it's wonderful and it's a lot of pressure, but it's very exhilarating. But how do I have something that I just do for the love of my job? And for me, it doesn't have to necessarily be immediately related to my work, but I do a lot of, I like to read. It kind of really helps with my imagination and it's linked to my work, but it's not immediately connected to it. So I like that freedom that it mm -hmm. has. For me, reading, even if it's just 20 minutes a day, it's something that I've relied on for a long time. Mm. That's cool. I mean, I'm terrible. There's a good, really good book called Daily Rituals that mm -hmm. has a lot of different entries with a lot of different people. And it's fascinating because everyone, whether they're politicians, artists, dancers, they all had their own routine to enable them to get to their full inspiration or full potential. Mm. So I'm trying to learn from that. If you're aspiring to it, then that's a success in itself. 
Yeah, definitely. It's the journey and also the small steps from your routine that will help you ultimately get to your bigger goal. A lot of the time I think of when people learn piano and I've tried so many times and every time I get frustrated of just practicing scales. But the more I practice scales, the easier the rest of it goes. But I couldn't fully comprehend the fact that practicing my scales would ultimately help me play a certain piece Mm. further down the line. Cool. So Gary... What have you been up to this week? Well, this week I had an interesting coaching assignment. I I coached a client for a Netflix film called Against the Ice. Mm. It was based on a true story of a Danish Arctic explorer. And they were filming in Iceland. And I was coaching him over Zoom and he was in his hotel room before he was shooting the next days. And the interesting thing is, is it's a small role but it features throughout the film as part of the um, exploration team. And the task in hand in prepping him for this role was how to bring this character to life without overstepping the size and function of the role and yet not disappear. Mm -hmm. Which, lo and behold, is something that we've touched upon in an episode Mm -hmm. very soon, Mm -hmm. looking at functional roles, cameo roles, all that kind of stuff. And the way we worked on it was to really find the most dominant thing on the written page. And in this particular case, we discovered that there was this sense of irony and sardonicism in the character's answers to others, that he'd just chip in every now and again. There's not a lot of dialogue, but he's always present. So we grabbed hold of that and built out from that essence and ran with it. And, you know, it's just a real reminder that there are always clues there if you look most of the time, if not always, on how to make small roles engaging by just grabbing hold of something and riffing on it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's an interesting film. It's got Joe Cole in the lead. Charles Dance is in it. Good old Charlie Dance. He shows up everywhere. Yes. (laughs) So that's what I've been up to this week. Cool. You know, Gary, when you talk about finding that kernel and then developing it, that idea, I find that it's so interesting. We've talked about it in so many episodes, and yet it's an ongoing process, isn't it? I mean, part of what what we try to do with all of our students and clients is to help them understand the kind of questions that they can be asking themselves. And I'm always intrigued to see sometimes some really, you know, skilled performers who still tumble sometimes over the language and not reading into it, right? And not picking up on the clues. It's so important, I think, you know, just going back to also what Stacy said, it's so important to be a reader. It's so important to be able to really, really finely tune your skills of understanding text as a jumping off point for your creative work. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that takes practice, you know, mm-hmm. it takes practice, but it also takes a particular focus of practice. Yeah. You know, if you're looking at the words on a page, it's like asking questions and seeing what the associations are. Like you say, mm-hmm. you riff off that and, mm-hmm. and you can start to make some choices and, and make some reasonable conjectures from that. But you've first of all got to focus down on it. And I find a lot of actors in the beginning when they're starting out, their reading is so generalized. Yes. And it's really about slowing down step by step and being very specific and just asking, what is this? What does this mean? What could it mean? Mm-hmm. Supposition. All creative work comes from supposition, I suppose. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's also really helpful. I mean, we've talked about this before as well. When there's someone outside of the person who's going to be performing it that's helping to ask those questions. Yes. Even if you are someone who knows how to ask those questions, Mm -hmm. having that exterior person who can probe or challenge or encourage, it just helps so much. The performer can feel free to go, well, let's explore this together. It's really freeing in a way that if you were just by yourself, even if you were kind of doing the same work, you may not feel as confident in Mm -hmm. it. 
Or maybe that's me. I don't know. I, I definitely know that for myself. <laughs> Let's bring Stacy into that because, yeah. you know, you work a lot, Stacy, and you work on some big stuff, which we're going to get into in a sec. And, you know, it's no secret that I work with you and vice versa. So what do you get from it? Be careful <laughs> what you say. But, uh, but, but we yeah. want the truth. Yeah, the truth and the nothing truth but and nothing but the truth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what's your take on that? I mean, for my process, it's definitely necessary to have someone else. I can get very distracted and I can procrastinate very easily. So if I have a script and I have someone to help me also guide my thoughts, but also question my thoughts, it is really important because there's also a risk sometimes of not reading properly or just having lots of expectations or putting thoughts down even before actually reading the script and thinking, mm -hmm. well, this is going to be a great film and this is how I want to play this character before even reading fully what the character's about. And mm -hmm. I think what's been the most helpful working with Gary is that it's the questions. It's not necessarily about the answers, mm -hmm. but it's having those questions mm -hmm. and having... Even at the end of a shoot, sometimes I, I still have questions, but I think that's becoming more and more okay and more and more exciting for my process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, questions, definitely, because that mm. takes you somewhere, doesn't it? It takes yeah. you somewhere. Yeah, and I think it opens you up as well a little bit. We can just be so constrained by sometimes what's on the page. If someone says, oh, but they're asking how my character is. We can get so bogged down by that. And I think it's it's great to suddenly ask, well, why are they asking this question and what are they doing while they're asking that question? And that's a very small action, but it can mean so much. And having a question that is, I think for me, so banal, but ask myself, well, why is it banal? And what makes it, why is it there? For me, it's just all about questions, which used to be terrifying. And I used to call Gary go, I don't know what I'm doing. I need to have answers. I need to, I need to understand or I need to know what I'm doing. And actually, sometimes it's more about the process of discovering the project and the character than it is about defining something, if that makes sense. It's quite mm -hmm. abstract what I'm saying. <laughs> That's good. No, I think it's actually really it's really related to to a lot of the work that actors should be doing and are doing. Certainly, you know, in the classroom, and it's one of the things that I think the three of us try and encourage is, you know, let's discover this thing together and let's give it a try. And you may land upon a way of doing it or a mm -hmm. reason for doing it that illuminates something for you or that tickles you and gets you off on an, on another path. But you have to put yourself in a place of being willing to explore. Absolutely. Right. And it can be a lonely place, you know, mm -hmm. being uh, on your own with your thoughts <laughs> mm -hmm. without anything to bounce off. And even if they're right, you're not sure that they are until you sound them off against somebody. Mm -hmm. And it's what you just talked about earlier in terms of having a bit of a routine and having a step-by-step -step thing that can lead you somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, the journey and, you know, I mean, the process is the thing. Mm -hmm. Of course, you've got to make a choice, right? But it gets it out of your head as well, I think having someone else there yeah um, you have to communicate it yeah exactly it's like yeah. it's not like you don't know the answer it's just you need validation of it or you need clarification of it mm. and that can only happen once it's expressed and you know unless you're really into talking out aloud on your own then <laughs> then you know you need someone then, to talk to <laughs> yeah. then you're just a crazy person in your hotel room talking <laughs> oh that's <laughs> it i totally <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay. i didn't mean to judge <laughs> 
This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters. Your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put VAGABOND25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. So just a little inside baseball here. We tried to have this interview last week and there was a technical thing and it just wasn't happening. But I was privy to a wonderful conversation that you and Gary had about basically the early days of how you guys met. So I just wanted to ask, Stacey, how did you find Gary? It was a lonely actor's ad. Okay. Wait a minute. Okay. That wasn't the story I heard last week. But like, I guess your first maybe big project, maybe you'd done stuff before that was, was Nymphomaniac. Yes. But so... Was it before that that you met Gary or what was the, yes, what, so, when on the journey, just kind of um, take us back so that before we get into the, the esoteric acting stuff. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. So I've always been a part of the sort of school theater groups and I always did the odd acting class here and there and I graduated and I just, I remember I was at a certain drama school and I was having a terrible time and I just wasn't very happy with where my training was leading me. And so I found this new, well, it wasn't new, but it was new for me, actor's studio that was in Warren Street called the Actors Temple. And they were doing an introduction course. And so I thought, well, this is perfect. I'm going to find out more about what this technique is about and what Meisner really is and how to apply it really in depth and met Gary. And it was one of those moments in my life where it was the most terrifying and exhilarating experience because from that course, I knew that I wanted to be an actor. So it was always more of a hobby. And and I remember just thinking, this is this technique is just so much more about what acting is for me and and it just felt so right at the time and I almost fainted it was it was, it was great. <laughs> yes, I have this effect on, <laughs> on your students, budding actors. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty wild. It was one of those things that I just everything kind of fell into place, and mm. I knew that to really commit to what I wanted to do and to be an actor, I had to continue doing this course. And so I signed up to the kind of longer course that the Actors Temple were doing at the time. And it kind of all started there. And then I got cast, I would say I got cast for Nymphomaniac probably three weeks after or something. It was, mm. it was pretty wild because Gary helped me do the audition for that film. 
Wow. And how did you get into the audition? You already had an agent at that point or did, was it just, how did that happen? I didn't have an agent. It was, um, I went in to do a commercial casting and I think it was a something silly where you feel really embarrassed, but you can have fun at the same time. It's like a face yeah. wash or, or, or toothpaste or something. And yeah. it was Des Hamilton doing the casting and he just kept looking at me funny and I thought, oh, here we go. Here's a pervy casting director. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I got in the room a little nervous, ready to be really angry at him. Um, I prepared this whole speech about feminism and how he can't look women that way. And he just ended up telling me that he was doing the casting for Lars von Trier's new movie and he wanted me to read for it. Wow. Yeah. Did you still do the speech? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> when all your grand ideas of feminism went out the window. Yeah. 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 And you were like, how can I ingratiate myself with him? I was like, uh-huh, hello. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that story, actually. Maybe you've told me, but I didn't know that. But um, okay, cool. <laughs> you were in Gary's course at the time. Mm. And so you you said, "Hey, I'm I've got this big audition. Yeah, can you help I, yeah. me out? Yeah. Basically, yeah. I said I, I have this. Please don't tell anyone. And we worked on it. I went to Zentropa in Copenhagen, which is uh, Lars's production company, and I did a screen test, and then came back to London. And for me, that was it. I I kind of didn't think it would go any further. I, I was very happy to do this more as a masterclass with Lars von Trier in a way. And then came back and one day got offered the role. I think it was maybe two weeks after the screen test. And then, and then that was it. And I remember being in class and sitting in the actor's temple going, wow, this is insane. And that day... <laughs> One of our fellow students, we were talking about ambition and Gary said, who would you want to, who's your dream director you'd want to work with? And she said, Lars von Trier. And I, I, I was so nervous <laughs> and so scared to tell her that I didn't tell her, I think, until I was actually shooting it. Did she take it well? <laughs> I think so. Okay. Well, that's, she's like, tell Lars I love him. <laughs> and um, the casting with it, because I remember, you know, we yeah. worked on it. Because you did a couple, didn't you? Didn't you go, did, did, was it a couple of sessions or was it just the one? I did two sessions in London with Des, and then I did one in Copenhagen. And we read the scenes. It was, there were two scenes. There was the scene with the father in the hospital um, when he's dying and he's talking about the trees and life. And then there was another scene... I can't remember which one it was. There was definitely two. And if I remember rightly, because we, we did a lot of work and I was like, you know, okay, this, this is amazing. I'm coaching someone for Lars von Trier's film. And I was as excited as you were. You played it really cool. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, you know, you can tell when, you, you can tell when I'm nervous because I'm actually playing it really cool. <laughs> when I'm not nervous, I'm all over the place. It doesn't matter. Um, and so I was really excited and, I, and, and then you went away and did it and I was like, how was it? And maybe you can tell us a little bit of how that was because I wanted to get into this anyways but while we're talking about Nymphomaniac now we might as well get into it and mm-hmm. about how he works and how he worked with you because it's really interesting because he is such an you know iconoclast and huge director but I, I just seem to remember that you came back and you went oh yeah yeah he, he just told me to throw everything away and and I was like devastated because <laughs> I'm, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> we just did all this work it's just like no get rid of that coaching stuff that you <laughs> Um, but yeah, didn't he just tell you to really like, really play it right down, didn't he? 
Yeah, it was it was quite mad because I I went in and and I thought, okay, I've I, I've I've prepared. I know what I'm doing. Um, let's just do it. Let's just I'm ready. And we got in, and I remember seeing there was um, his first AD who was ho- who was there to film, and then there was another actor who was there to read, and he was just really relaxed, and he said, "Okay." let's just give it a go and so we did one scene and then he just said just forget the text and and just put the sides down don't worry about the lines and don't worry about doing the scene just see what happens and for me that was terrifying because I thought well I don't know what's going to happen but I think it was almost quite liberating because it took away the pressure of performing and we ended up doing the scenes anyway because I think as actors you kind of know where a scene is going and your instinct kicks in and then we also did a lot of improv he asked me to talk about my he was like oh imagine your dead cat um has has, your cat has just died and you're talking to someone about how to bury it correctly or something like that something really simple and and mortifying and I remember thinking, oh, God, I'm not a cat person. <laughs> <laughs> and my brain was just going, what would Gary do? What would he tell me to do? And he's like, okay, well, it's not about the cat. It doesn't matter. It's not about a cat. And so I, I was like, okay, well, I don't have a dog. Um, uh, okay, okay, I think I know what they want me to do. And I think he wants me to burst into tears and cry. And I thought, okay, that's, that's where I need to go. Don't think about the cat. And... And so we just improved, and I was just talking about this dead cat. I, was like, I don't know what the hell's going on, but it was—it was. I had a really great time. <laughs> I think because it was just so unpredictable. <laughs> Sorry, I just keep picturing you like, yeah. So listen, what we need to do is get the box and um, say a little prayer. I'm <laughs> just picturing you not really feeling the cat angle, but, yeah. but you know, figuring it out in the moment. How am I going to get to the heart of what my director is giving me? It's great. Yeah. It's such a great story. And I remember nodding, going, mm-hmm, yes, of course, yes. <laughs> and my brain going, think fast, think fast, think fast. <laughs> but I think that's kind of, it was like a great learning curve as well. That mm-hmm. I'd prepped the scene with Gary and, and I knew that they were in me somehow. So even if we didn't put what we had prepped together in practice, it was still there. So whether it was talking about a cat or improvising a scene with the other actor, that preparation did come out regardless. Mm-hmm. It's always going to, isn't it, at some point? It's yes. that thing that we talk about when a classic question is when actors go to a, an audition or a casting and then they have a particular take on it and go, well, what if they ask me to do the opposite? And it's like, well, then you do the opposite or you do what they say. Mm-hmm. But your understanding of what you've created and your preparation should inform that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, even mm-hmm. if it seems like the opposite of your choice, all of your understanding and preparation will inform you to be able to make that adjustment because it's still coming from a core understanding of the scene. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things about Nymphomaniac was how risque it was. Mm. And I wanted to know how you thought about it, if there was even a question about, well, what is this going to mean? It was a question that I was asked a lot when the role was offered to me. But ultimately, what I kept coming back to was the script. And it was such a beautiful piece of writing in itself. And it was talking about something that 
is very uncomfortable to discuss. And I think sex addiction, like any other addiction, can be very complicated and complex. But the fact that it is sex, I think it mixes with desire. And the sort of having those boundaries between desire and addiction kind of blurred made it quite difficult for people around me to understand but things were so clear for me mm-hmm. I knew Lars's cinema I knew what he was trying to do and in terms of the nudity it was always stated that I would have a porn double and it was always stated that I would not have to perform any of the actual sex scenes they would make a collage of the porn double's body and my body mm-hmm. so in terms of my career as such, I didn't worry that much because I felt very protected. And I Mm -hmm. felt like Lars was someone who as crazy or unpredictable he might seem, he is extremely respectful and he's an artist. He makes difficult films, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't make him a difficult human being. And I think that's where people get confused. Mm -hmm. And then I had also a lot of sort of backlash when it came out because they were saying they felt bad for me or that they felt guilty. And I said, but then if you're feeling bad for me, you're taking away my choice of making this movie. I signed Mm -hmm. up to do this film. I said, yes, I could have said no. I wasn't coerced in any way. And I think a lot of people dismissed that choice that I made because I was a woman and because I was young and Lars was older and I said no I was just as I'm just as responsible for my presence as Lars is Mm -hmm. and the the funny thing is that he would freak out a lot more than I would and we would we would take breaks on set and he'd have he'd have a little sip of beer and we'd just chat about trees or whatnot and then and then resume shooting 10 minutes after. Mm -hmm. Was it difficult for you to do the shooting? Psychologically difficult or? No um... because I hadn't in a very simply simplistic way, I didn't know what a film set was. So there was a lot of discovery and that was really exciting. Lars also works with a crew of people who he's worked with for 20, 30 years now. So mm-hmm. there's a real sense of family and a real sense of making something together. So it never felt unsafe or manipulative. So I had mm-hmm. a I had a really wonderful experience. I learned so much from Lars and I wish more sets could be like his. Yeah. It was a rude awakening mm-hmm. when I went on, <laughs> on my second set. I was like, oh it's not all, always like that. <laughs> I'm not I'm not in a wonderful cocoon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just uh, you say you learned a lot from Lars. One of my questions was gonna be, you know, and I'm sure there's lots, so maybe one thing or maybe the most prominent at the moment in your mm-hmm. mind. What was one thing perhaps that you picked up from working with Lars, considering that it was very early on in your career uh, in comparison to other directors since? I mean, this might go against all of your advice on screen acting. <laughs> so please edit it out. If, if no, do it. it. No. <laughs> but Lars said to me, he said, you're too nice to the camera, Stacey. Fight with the camera make him look at you, make him follow you, don't follow him. And Mm -hmm. for me, that was a weird piece of advice, but it freed me and it it made it about the scene and it didn't make it about the camera as such. And immediately from that moment on, I just felt a lot more relaxed, a lot more focused and things just worked out. 
That's great. Yeah. He's saying, don't make it about the camera, make it yeah. about the scene. So don't yeah. don't even play to the camera, play to yeah. the scene and everything else mm-hmm. in the scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he would say to me, Stacey, push the camera. It fits in your way. Push it. He's The DP is a strong man. <laughs> and luckily, I, be, I became very close friends with the DP, Manuel. And he was like, don't worry. And so we ended up, it was almost like a dance. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily a fight, but it became more of a dance, which was which was really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Ed, Ed Spaliers, who you also know, who we had on the podcast, who also worked with Lars von Triers, I'm building up a bit of a Lars von Triers. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to get Lars on. <laughs> yeah. Well, wow. Uh, he said, yeah, he said it was like so freeing. He said, don't worry about the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said sometimes he knocked into it and he didn't. And it was like, he just said, really, the camera is like nothing, you know, just do what you want to do. And he said it was so freeing. Mm-hmm. Well, also for his filmmaking, I think you need yeah. a certain sense of freedom in terms of your performance almost I think it he works more along the lines of theatre he doesn't necessarily focus on the performance of your face so it's about your body and what you do with your body in the scene which is really exciting for me it made me a lot less self-conscious it made me improvise in ways that I hadn't really thought of before and and it put Mm. me in my body which I think I needed. I tend to be very intellectual and very heady, and I I needed to sort of cut that Mm. cord. (laughs) Great stuff. Brilliant. In fact, one of my questions is about improvisation because you were talking about your own personal need for structure and knowing what's coming. And so I wanted to know how you feel about improvisation and especially hearing that Lars was employing so much of it. How do you feel about it? Are you, is it friendly for you now or does it still get you all wacky? How do you feel about it? Do you embrace it? I embraced it mm-hmm. on set because by then I know the material. I know the actors a lot more. We're in the scenes. And I think a lot of behaviors do present themselves fairly naturally in terms of improvising. Mm-hmm. I hate improvising in rehearsals, as in, I think the experiences that I've had in rehearsing films and doing readings is sitting at a table and sort of just talking talking about a scene and then suddenly the director says oh let's just Mm. improvise something (laughs) and it doesn't really feel very Mm -hmm. conductive in Mm -hmm. those rooms I think for me improvisation is something that is done to Mm -hmm. create and not to get to know each other if that makes sense that's, but that's a very personal mm-hmm. thing. Um, maybe other people love it and, and great for them. I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's just very hard as well to improvise when you don't necessarily know the mm-hmm. script well enough. You don't necessarily know what the director's looking for. It's just a very, quite a strange process doing readings mm-hmm. on films, I think. And a lot of the time that they just sort of throw improvisation as a way of loosening things up. And I think improvisation can be really wonderful Mm-hmm. If done well. Yeah, for some people, they really can clam up if it's introduced too early or in a way that is not really meant to clarify. You know, if the intention behind it is not right. about really, really diving deep into the scene and understanding it and playing with it, then I think it's mm. hard for people to trust enough to rely on their instincts to get them where they where they need to go. Otherwise, there's this mm. judgment that they seem to carry around about it. Like, oh God, now I have to steer this thing in this direction and that's a 
exactly what you don't want to be doing, right? Like it's, it's counterintuitive sometimes. So I yeah. completely uh, appreciate your sentiments about that. I think for improvisation, which we've also addressed in one of our mm-hmm. other episodes, you see how I'm flagging up our previous episodes? Love it. Love it Good time. job. <laughs> You're really professional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I do try. But I think, you know, in terms of improvisation, you need to know what you're improvising out mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. You don't Absolutely. have to have much necessarily, as much as maybe the scene circumstances contain, mm-hmm. but you certainly need some very specific guidelines and know what it is that you're improvising out of and Mm -hmm. that is the problem with improvisers and what you've just said Stacey and often directors do do that as a way of liberating you and freeing you up and getting to know each other and getting to improvise the day before this scene or whatever and it's like well I'm going to flounder more if I haven't got a few flags Mm -hmm. to show me the way you know I don't need everything but I need some very specific details to kind of ground me otherwise you're just making up shit yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah what are you freeing me from yeah. right now there's nothing to be free from we're not in it yet you know right <laughs> <laughs> exactly i wanted to ask you speaking of improvisation on leading lady parts which i just loved that is such a funny funny <laughs> film do you guys know it it's a wonderful riff on the audition process and for women and oh, wait is that the short film where they come in yes. and nobody's right for it oh and yeah. they keep, and they talk yeah. shit about them the BBC <laughs> thing? is that a bbc thing or Gemma arterton produced it and uh it was directed by mm-hmm. jessica swell and it was basically yeah, a riff off um an audition process and and the countless things that actresses Mm -hmm. get told in the audition process and at the end they cast Tom Hiddleston because he's just (laughs) he's just so perfect (laughs) it's so good it's so good I highly recommend it so listeners if you've not seen it you need to you need to track this down and watch it it's really great and especially for actresses I think it hits home in a wonderful way and I've always wondered what degree of Mm. improvisation existed in that project if any and clearly it's very sharply written yes it was written really really wonderfully and so there wasn't that much mm-hmm. improvisation needed it was a lot more about the moments in between and how each line was delivered I came in and it was just such a funny and joyful mm-hmm. set to be on that you didn't I think improvisation sometimes can come when you feel like the scene isn't necessarily going somewhere. So you need to find another Mm. avenue or you need to find something else in the character for a certain moment. Whereas for leading lady parts, it it was just Mm -hmm. so clear and and just so easy to do that it was a a joy to actually Mm -hmm. stick to the text. Isn't that nice? Yeah. (laughs) We need more of those experiences. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> text is so strong you don't want to mess with it it's like yeah. um mm. in the introduction i you know i mentioned that your career since nymphomaniac has been pretty unique because of the way you've managed to straddle and jump around between hollywood and mainstream and indie and art house mm-hmm. and working in two different languages because you're a french speaker mm. and in english so you know how's that how's working in two different languages mm-hmm. in two different markets do you do anything to particularly adjust do you need to or they just is it just all filmmaking i mean how different is it and and you know what the challenges to that oh big question i personally love working on 
two different markets in the sense that it gives me a real variety of experiences. And I'm not necessarily tied down to a genre or a type. What's so wonderful about being an actor is that you can do so many varied jobs. And for me, of course, I, I, I've always wanted to inscribe myself in a certain type of cinema because that's what I like watching. But by no means do I want it to restrict my choices. And I think if I can confuse people by doing something like the Ridley Scott mm -hmm. film and then go back to doing a French indie, that's for me really mm -hmm. exciting. I think in terms of speaking two different languages as well, that helps a lot. There's a part of it that gives me a bit more peace if I know that there aren't as many projects in the UK that are right for me, then I know that at some point something in France will show up and vice versa. So it definitely gives me a bit more, yeah, I think a bit more peace in terms of what's out there. Yeah. Do you feel a difference acting in French versus in English? No, I'd, I've never really, I don't think so. It feels very natural. Each project seems very clear on where it belongs. I think the way that films are made mm -hmm. is very different. The way that French films are made, the financing is very different. The way directors audition actors is so different. Set life is so different. Can you give us an example of a difference that you've found? Well, in America and England, there's self-tapes or you go to an audition, you go to a casting director and, and you audition and you're put on tape there. And then further down the line, you'll meet mm -hmm. the director if you go through the ring in a way. But in France, what's so fascinating is that directors will have a sort of list of actors that they like and they'll have coffee. Mm. They'll just talk to you. And it's great, but it's also terrifying <laughs> on both cases. But that sort of process of really letting the director have total control and also humanizing the experience, I think for me, is something that really stands mm. out. Yeah, having coffee is like, oh, great. I don't have to go through this fake situation that is constructed as an audition. However, you're in a way a mm. bit more naked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. You're a lot more yourself, which I think is also why a director, a, sort of a French director wants to meet you. I think the way that French cinema is made and the stories that are being told, I think the sort of ethos of casting people is also based on their personality. And whether or not you then play a character that is very different to you, I think that's even just beyond the point. I think a director wants to know if they're going to be able to collaborate with you and if you're going to be able to talk and discuss things or change things together rather than be in a battle constantly about which frame you prefer or when's their close-up mm. going to be, for example. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the French, right? You talk a lot more and you discuss a lot more and you get mm -hmm. topical a lot more and, you know, have coffee, smoke cigarettes, yes. and then maybe get up and do something. Well, they have long days, Gary. We <laughs> don't do nothing. <laughs> they don't call them French hours for nothing. Exactly. Although there is one hour lunchtime imposed with wine obligatory. Oh, wow. Yeah, now there you go. Yeah. Uh -oh. <laughs> Do you see a lot of differences in the writing because of the language differences? I'm teaching right now in German uh, with German mm -hmm. students, and we've talked a little bit on some of the podcasts about how I think the structure of the German language and the tendencies of the language may present sometimes some 
challenges to the students in terms of expressiveness and getting past barriers to connection, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, like in the German is structured so that the verb often comes at the end. Whereas, you know, in English, it's like, I hate this. I want this. I need this. So sometimes I have to encourage the German students to think in English about it with that kind of simplicity and clarity of intention. Do you see a relationship between sort of the writing and the portrayal and the way a scene is laid out or the dynamics that it presents because of the culture and the language? Definitely. I think from what I've read so far, I've found that English speaking scripts are a lot more clear and a lot more structured Mm-hmm. In terms of just even just looking at a script, um, glancing at it, you know exactly how much dialogue there is. You can figure out what's happening. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of the French scripts, I mean, I love French language, but there's a lot of explaining, yes. there's a lot of talking, mm-hmm. and you have to really read in between the lines to find the action mm-hmm. because sometimes you just you can read three pages of dialogue and think wait, what is happening? (laughs) That's so interesting. This is really great writing and the French language is such a joy to read. Mm -hmm. But in terms of actables, it's a totally different way of writing. Do you find that the French actors also are looking for the action? Do you think that they play into that verbosity? Or do you think that they are also going, okay, what's the action? What am I going to play here? And is that an advantage that you bring thinking about the training from that kind of English viewpoint? I think it's very different from the way French actors are trained. How I felt on set or looking around me and looking at how French actors work, some of them, not all of them, I find I'm sometimes quite surprised at how intellectual they are. And it's wonderful. It's it's something really unique to have someone who's so eloquent and clever and funny, and it can be very impressive. But it took me a while to realize that you can say a lot of words, but it doesn't mean that you're doing anything. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's where the difference lies. I think the training that I've done with Gary is very much about what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, you could say gobbledygook, but what is it that you're doing Mm -hmm. when you're saying gobbledygook that matters right. mm. and the French are very much more about the word um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and <laughs> how you say the word and how clever you can say the word um, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's quite different it's, it's really interesting mm-hmm. yeah. I mean I sound like I hate the French I don't hate the French but it's a very <laughs> different way of working <laughs> Uh, you're allowed to say that you know you're French and English I'm half French yeah exactly I'd like to bring it round to sort of up to date Mm -hmm. and talk to you about Archive that has recently been released Mm -hmm. I watched it on Amazon and Archive is a really interesting film and going back and reminding ourselves of the interesting path that you've had jumping between mainstream and art house and indie and French and all the rest of it and this is a a very English indie film and it's about a lonely computer scientist in the year 2038 who secretly works on an android version of his wife who died in a car crash. And, you know, when I watched it, I thought, oh, she's going to play a robot. That's interesting. I'd like to ask her about her approach. But then you also, (laughs) as I watched it, it wasn't just the robot. You had to play the wife 
before she died in flashbacks. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there was that. And then you were also the voice of this captured spirit recording of the voice that was fed into the robot. So there were kind of three, and then there were the other robots, previous reincarnations. So there, there was a lot going on for you in that film. Mm. We were always interested in the process of acting, and often, you know, we're talking from a perspective of character in terms of everyday human psychology that you can get behind, mm. but this mm. isn't. Yeah, I'd wanted to do something really different from what I'd done so far. Um, and I was being presented with either the girlfriend role or the wife that's not in love anymore or I was being asked to play 15 year olds and I was getting really frustrated and I'd said to my agent like I just I think we just need to do something really different and like playing a robot and <laughs> like you she, do like you do and she turned <laughs> to me and said well well that's weird you say that because I was just about to send you this script called archive and the director would love to talk to you about this role. So I spoke to Gavin Rothery, the director, and not only did I really love the script and I thought it was a really interesting film about memory and about grief and about love, but I thought the process of Mm-hmm. actually doing that part was something that was quite fascinating and it needed a totally different approach um and I couldn't quite get into it or understand the character or sort of have that sort of moment of oh this is this is the character until I'd put the costume on and for me it all clicked in immediately from then on because it was such a restrictive costume that it immediately placed me physically where the character was and for mm-hmm. me it was the biggest piece of information and from then on it all sort of fell into place because I had a full-on latex costume I had full-on prosthetics all over my face I had sort of earmuffs so I couldn't really hear Mm. and I couldn't really move and I couldn't in certain incarnations of the costumes I couldn't sit down so I was really restricted in having to interact with people or understand how to communicate and that became the key for me for J3 who I play in, in in the film fantastic i mean it's it's a really charming film because can you say a little bit about the director and what he's done before because there was definitely a, a real aesthetic that he was going after yeah and whether he did he give any helping hand to you or was it just you offered it up and he accepted it yeah so he did all the creative design on a film called moon so you can see certain similarities between the two films and the great thing about gavin is that he is so in love with sci-fi that he, when I met him for the first time, he just spoke to me for probably an hour, an hour and a half about everything and how the film would look and how the set would look. And there was going to be little to no CGI on set because he wanted everything to feel real and that Mm -hmm. the costumes would be this color, the door panels would be that color, the typography of the text would be in certain typography. So there was a lot of certainty And Mm -hmm. when we got to the set, we were lucky enough to have the full base actually created so we could really play around with the space. Mm -hmm. And because everything was so clear in his mind about what the world we were in was, we then could really kind of riff off. And we did a bit of improvising, but a lot of it, I didn't really make the movie because it never really hit the story properly because mm-hmm. what he'd written was actually just what was was needed. So he was, yeah, it's like 
incredible working with someone who's just so passionate about a doorknob. <laughs> it's just, I, you know, I kind of, I, I always really admire people who really communicate their passion and who really get excited about it, even if it's a doorknob or a costume. I think that's really great. <laughs> Fantastic. I haven't seen the project yet. I've just seen the trailer and I, I was mesmerized by the trailer. And I love there's that quality of humanity that I'm feeling in your character that mm. is so often missing in, in sci-fi projects. And I think it's usually the key. And I love there's something in your voice and in your look as you respond to him about how he's maybe let you down. I forget what the line is, but you're right on that ridge between a human emotion and something that's been manipulated. It's just a beautiful dance that I think you're doing. I can't wait to see the project. Gosh, I'm nervous for you to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm eager to watch it. And I, I love the idea about the communication challenge having really informed your approach to it. Yeah, I, I because I move a lot when I talk, mm -hmm. which I discovered. I sort of, I'm very bubbly and my arms move and my face moves and my shoulders move. And I suddenly couldn't communicate in the same mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. I couldn't walk. I can hear people. So I had to be really specific when I said something mm -hmm. because otherwise people would get confused or they'd say, what, what? And like, it was, I mean, some of it was really hard, but it was definitely one of those moments where you find that you create something out of the restrictions that you're in. Mm -hmm. And that was a great challenge. So it sounds like you, rather than prepared a lot, you found a lot. Is that right in saying? Yeah, I prepared a lot, but a lot of it went out the window because a lot of it didn't feel adequate, I think, or didn't quite hit the mark until I was on set just because of the physical restrictions I was under. So it was a moment of also just trusting that the work that I had done, even though I wasn't using it, would, would come in use. And I think that's what I like about working with you, Gary, and, and the Meisner technique is that whatever you prepare is useful. It's, it, it doesn't matter if you're, you end up doing something different or if you end up doing the opposite. It still informs you and it informs the life and it informs how you play a character so much. Very cool. And I think also what was interesting is you played that character, which was the main, but then you also played a very real human being as in the flashbacks as the wife. Yeah, that was weird. I was <laughs> going to say, did you jump between the two or did you do one in one block and one in another? And, and how did you go between the two going, I'm playing a non-human and now I'm playing a very psychological human? <laughs> I was all over the place when I was playing the real person. I just, I didn't know what to do. I, I just was, yeah, it was a really weird process of suddenly going, oh, I can move, I, I can breathe properly, I'm wearing normal clothes. It was a really weird moment. And I think it sort of informed the performance, I think, hopefully in the best of ways. And I'm always more of a, a person who will take what's happening to me and use it for my work instead of playing against what's happening. It was definitely quite strange because we did a bit of the real wife first and then we went into the robots, which I had then three different stages of. And then we finished off with a few other bits of, of me playing Jules, the wife. And that was really, really strange. Suddenly being 
human. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to say, I, I kind of, you were pretty animated, which is, I haven't seen you like that for a while. So that was pretty cool. So maybe that, maybe you were just felt this liberation out of being in the robot. There was a playfulness about it. And maybe that was what you were working towards or whether you mm. were directed. But so I don't know whether how much of that was just like, you know, playing with Theo James. Was it Theo James? Yes. Yes. So for me, one of the entry points, I think, that was really interesting to explore is that Theo James's character is constantly trying to reconnect with his wife, but there's always something missing. Mm. And I wanted to find or I wanted to explore what were those things and what is it about us humans that a robot can't emulate? And it was something that I thought there's definitely something in the movement. And I found that out through fittings when I did the costume fittings in the, in the robot suit and then comparing it to how I felt in Jules's day-to-day clothes. And it, for me, there's I think there's a magic about us humans that we can't copy-paste. Mm. And it was about finding that and about being imperfect and about being a bit messy and bubbly and and not necessarily controlled Mm. that I wanted to really keep and try and communicate as messy and imperfect as I could. Mm. (laughs) It almost sounds like you got to play a French woman and a British woman in the same film. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, have you got any other? Yeah, well, I just, beyond finding a more concrete way of scheduling your life that you talked about at the beginning. Is there anything in particular that you're looking for in in the next roles that you want to take or the next acting challenges that you want to take on? I want to do something that requires physical training Mm -hmm. because the process of combining that training, I I did a lot of ballet when I was young and I thrived a lot on the intensity of it. And it's something that I miss a lot. And Mm -hmm. I've always wondered if you combine something where you have to physically train really intensely, how that would then inform the performance Mm -hmm. further down the line. So I'd love to do something that would require me to learn kickboxing at a really high level or even, you know, take ballet up again. Um, Black Swan too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just something, yeah, I think something where I explore maybe more of my body. I I struggle Uh, a lot as well. I mean, I think I said it earlier, I'm very heady. So I think doing something that requires me to work on my body, I think is quite important and a good challenge. Fantastic. Cool. Are you able to talk about the BBC project, The Serpent? That's come out now, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's out. Um, It came out in January on the 1st Mm. um, on BBC and it's also on iPlayer. And it follows the investigation and ultimately the arrest of a serial killer during the hippie trails in Bangkok and India. And it was a really, how to describe it, really crazy project in the sense that when I arrived I was so aware that this was my first tv show Mm -hmm. and the rhythm is so different and Mm -hmm. the fact that they have two directors that for me was something so strange and new I always make my choice based on a director so the fact that there was two I just it kind of blew my mind (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a really wonderful project because it explores a lot of the sort of unknown characters in this case that terrified the world for quite a long Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. 
I can't really say who I play because then I'm spoiling it for anyone right. who hasn't seen it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to do more TV? I mean, did you like the process ultimately or do you want to stick with film? I think I do. Yeah. I think the way that TV has completely changed over the last years and how streaming platforms have completely reinvented mm-hmm. projects and, and the way mm-hmm. that they're financed, I think it's given a lot more freedom to TV. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I would if it was the right project and the right part. I think it's something that I'd I'd like to explore. I don't think I'd be very good on something that would last for six years, but a mini series, short or, season, yeah, yeah, short season. Or if I'm guaranteed that my character will die in season two, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> While engaging in physical combat. Exactly. Preferably yeah. holding a gun, doing some sort of crazy jump uh, in the air. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't really talked much about theatre, but have you done much theatre? I haven't. No, I haven't done any. And is that something you maybe you're interested in? or? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd, I'd really like to. I mean, at the moment, it's a year ago now. Um, I was talking about it with my agent and we were sort of slowly trying to figure out how to do that switch and then obviously COVID took over and and now it's a very different scene so I'm hoping that when things get back to normal it's something I can explore because I think the process of being on stage every night is just so different from being on set Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll come. You've got to go and do, you've got to do some theatre. Hopefully. Yeah. 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 Touch wood. <laughs> um, before we get on to the last, there's just one thing I like. It's a bit random and I just throw it out there when we have a, an actor on or an actress on is, you know, we like to get into the nitty gritty of the acting process and the practicalities mm-hmm. of it. And it's just, is there any special rituals that you have or anything that you do to prepare on set or before you go on set? Any sort of actory special ritual that you engage with that you like to share with us? Um, yes. So I discovered this recently on a project. And I think, Gary, you and I have been talking about my rituals and how to protect myself from being overly social on set. But now... I appear very grumpy, but I basically don't talk to anyone in the morning (laughs) until I'm on set. Because as soon as I start talking to either the driver or the other cast member in the morning, my focus is gone for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. So I put my earpods in and sometimes I don't listen to anything. Sometimes I listen to a podcast or sometimes I just listen to the news. And it's just so that I'm focused and my head is clear. Mm -hmm. That's something that I really, really um, thrive from. Great. Yeah, it's important. It's like people have lots of different ways of engaging with their focus, but mm. you can get carried away with the excitement of being on set and the social element of being on set and all the wonderful people that are on set that it can be draining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can make friends in the evening after set. <laughs> <laughs> or at lunch if you're filming in France. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, let's get on to our final part of the podcast. A top tip, something that we have seen or heard or read, a work of art that has inspired us recently. So, Brian, yeah. what has inspired you over the last week or so? You know what? Okay, so I there is a Netflix oh, I'm going to tell the whole story. I'm not going to tell the whole story. It's not it'll be it'll be brief. But um famous know, last words. Know, right? <laughs> oh god, you should talk to my students about this. You know god. you know when Brian Cannot says I'm going to be brief, you know <laughs> get you know buckle up cuz okay. it's going to be a long night. I'm going to grab okay. a snack. Um, okay. <laughs> so 
So because of, you know, we kind of watched everything on Netflix and uh, canceled my Amazon subscription. So I am just on Netflix and I was like, oh, Space Sweepers. What is this? It looks kind of weird on the poster. (laughs) And then I clicked on it and it's a really fun Korean space adventure, but they have other languages there too. And the special effects are pretty good and the characters are really fun. And I was like, oh, this is great. This is, this is really good. So I, so I watched Space Sweepers on Netflix, but that's not actually my thing that I want to talk about. That's just the entree into it. So then I was like, oh, this is, this was fun. Told you. And I started clicking on a different thing and I started watching like a Chinese kind of martial arts, you know, with, with wizards and and things like that and demons. So I watched that. And then my wife has been learning Italian on Duolingo. And I thought, oh, I bet they have Mandarin on Duolingo. And so I started to learn Mandarin on Duolingo. And I've been going like gangbusters the whole week. So that's my that's actually my tip. I mean, Space Sweepers is really fun and I do recommend it on Netflix, but I'm working on Mandarin on Duolingo in my spare time. And it's taken the place of other mobile games that I might be playing. I just turn it on, do a lesson or two. And I have no idea how much I'm actually retaining outside of looking at the app of it, but it's quite interesting. I like the puzzle of it and um, that's what I'm doing. So, so Mandarin on Duolingo. That's impressive. It's good. It's a good, it's a fun system. And you know what? It might be another film acting market for you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think we have probably plenty of people in China who can do it. I've actually shot on a Chinese. Okay, so now I now I see you've opened the door. Now I am going to tell a story. So I actually shot on a Chinese TV series that came to Prague to film, and they shot sixty days straight. Oh my gosh! Wow. No days off. Wow. Yeah, what? and I only had two on it or three, but the checks. Because the Chinese people were like, it seemed like they were like, we can just burn anyone out and we'll get someone to come in. And it felt like that was like human capital was not, was not a concern. But, um, but the checks on the film were really not happy to be working 60 days straight, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 hour days. But the other crazy thing about the, the way that they shot that film was that they had four cameras shooting at once, no slates. Wow. Mm. So go figure. Yeah. I don't know how they kept track of it. I was like, this is an editing nightmare. Yeah. But they just shot no slates. Wow. And okay. And the other thing that I I don't know, I didn't even think this was going to happen today. But okay. Then the other thing <laughs> was that I was playing an American <laughs> lawyer who was dealing with a Chinese businessman. And the Chinese businessman was speaking, I think he was speaking Mandarin, but he was speaking not English. And I was speaking English. And they had hired a guy who lives in Prague and just speaks English and Chinese and is not really an actor and is not really a translator to play the translator. And they didn't give him a script. And so he was actually doing simultaneous translation of me and the other actor. And so it was crazy because, you know, normally if you're in a close-up, they're like, don't talk over the other actor. You know, you got to make sure that you're not covering the end of their line with your, the beginning of your line, right? So that they can keep the frame clean when you're in a close-up. But this was like, no, forget that. As soon as I started talking in English, the translator started translating it into Mandarin and vice versa. It's just, it was like, oh, wow, this is a wild ride. So that's my (laughs) Chinese story. Um, But now if I was in that situation again, I could say, 
I like fish or I want, I eat fish or I drink water. You know, I could maybe say that. That's that's, Weekends free. How about you? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mom and dad live in China. You know, I have that. That's impressive. That's impressive that. That's really important. Yeah, no, it's good. I, I'm, I'm excited to do it. So, Andrea, what have you been up to? And don't say, Top and don't say, don't say I'm going to be brief. <laughs> okay. Okay, I, I will not say that. I will say I that. Edit. I'm the editor of this podcast, so I'm just screwing myself. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Oh my you God. never learn. You never learn. What has inspired you this week? <laughs> what has inspired me? Well, I'm going to I'm going to go in a, a slightly different direction from Brian. I've been listening to a few more books on Audible. I'm really enjoying using Audible because whenever I'm walking the dog or driving, I can have this wonderful time of contemplation. So there's a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's very very interesting. His story is interesting. And um, it's the idea is that the atom is this smallest, smallest possible unit. And this idea that if we make tiny, tiny adjustments in our habits, we can have enormous results. And he has fabulous examples and it's all backed up by science. And it's a super interesting read. So if you're looking to get some information on how your habits are formed and how you can optimize them in a way that is sustainable and that's backed by scientific examination. I highly recommend it. It's a really good listen. And then there's a book that was recommended in one of my girl groups called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle by Dr. Mm. Emily Nagoski. And believe me, I'm listening to that. And it's super interesting. I've just begun that this week, but I highly recommend that as well. It's geared towards women and there's some key ideas that she springs from. And again, there's going to be a lot of science in it, but it's a very interesting look at the cycle of stress being not just the fight or flight and then killing the lion, but the closing the circle, so to speak, and regulating the body and regulating the stress itself, not just the cause of the stress, but the stress itself and the ways that you can signal to your body that you are indeed safe again. And this idea that when we're in burnout or burnout state, that we're sort of always in that tunnel of stress and we're not closing the loop on solving it for our bodies, you know? So there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. I recommend that. And then um, I love the Anna Ferris episode with Melissa McCarthy, who's just so Mm -hmm. brilliant. It's a great episode. I highly recommend giving that a listen. And finally, I'm going down the list with my now 15-year-old daughter looking for films. I'm trying to educate her on important films. And so, of course, I picked Sleepless in Seattle this week because Ah. I felt that she needed to know that film, and she quite enjoyed it. And it's a really lovely look back at, you know, in a way, some kind of classic romantic comedy filmmaking. It was really, Mm. it was totally enjoyable to see again. It's a classic. Fantastic. Well, along with Brian's Mandarin and uh, (laughs) Korean films, that's a veritable feast and buffet that both of you have served up. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) We're trying. We're trying to do it. Stacey, any top tips, uh, any artwork or music or? Yeah, there's, um, there's this one documentary that I watched a few days ago called The Truffle Hunters. 
And it's by two directors, Michael Dweck and Gregory Kershaw. And it basically follows three truffle hunters um, who are at a certain point in their life where they're either going to have to stop truffle hunting or continue. But obviously, because they're, they're getting quite old, there's health concerns and there's danger concerns. But it's a really, really endearing portrait of this community I think it's in the Piedmont region in Italy and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's just there's just a lot of dialogue between these truffle hunters and family members then truffle hunters and the buyers who keep pushing them to continue truffle hunting and another part of why I like this so much is that it's also about each of these men's relationship to their dogs because all these dogs are so important to their life and they've become part of their livelihood, but also part of their personality. And it's just so Mm. wonderful to watch and so beautiful and poetic and really, really human. I loved it. Absolutely loved Mm. it. That's so cool. Yeah, sounds great. Very warm. Mm. Sounds like a warming. Really funny as well in a very Italian way. (laughs) And Gary, what about you? Bring us home. Last but not least, I'll bring you all home. Well, I'm going to stay on topic. I'm falling asleep here. <laughs> I'm going to stay on topic and recommend one of the films directed by Brady Corbett, which Stacey's in, and it's called Childhood of a Leader. Mm. And it's a stunning first feature. And it's, it's, it's a kind of origin story about a privileged, petulant 10-year-old kid who's fated, unfortunately, to become a fascist dictator. Uh, you know, big themes here. <laughs> but, you know, there's fine performances all, all round. Um, Berenice Bejo and Robert Patterson's in it. And, of course, Stacey. And it's just the whole film, really atmospheric cinematography. There's a fantastic score by the late or then late Scott Walker. It's an intelligent script and it's, it's executed, bearing in mind it's his first feature. It's executed with such artistry and assurance that it belies mm. his first-time director credentials mm. at the time, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a very affecting and thought-provoking film. And um, coaching Stacey and seeing her in it was like you know it was a real proud moment being a part of this really art house film, but really just complete. And as a first feature, it's like it's so impressive, mm. and it will leave you thinking, and uh, it will leave you very effective. So that's my recommendation: Childhood of a Leader. Great. Um, you could also check out actually Vox Lux, Brady Corbett's second feature mm-hmm. mm. um, that Stacey's in with Natalie yes. Portman. But I tilt more towards this one. Very cool. Well, I think that's going to do it. Stacey, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing so many wonderful stories and, and insights into your process and, to, and into your journey. Like, it's really awesome to have you mm-hmm. um, sharing that with us. It's it's really special. So thank you very much for joining us. We are us honored to have you. Thank, mm, thank you. you. Yeah. It's, I've really enjoyed this. So thank you. And as always, we encourage our listeners to write in with questions or topics that you'd like us to discuss. We've gotten a few this week, so we'll be addressing them, those questions that came in, in a future episode. 
And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at Vagabond Actors on Twitter or on Instagram, or you can write to us on our Facebook page. Stacy, how can people keep up with what you're up to? I think you have some social media presence. Do you want to share that? I or? do. I can't remember what it is, though. <laughs> well, I know it's on Instagram. I just need to remember what my um, handle is. Oh, yeah. It's underscore Stacy Martin. It's very simple. Okay. It's beautiful photography very. on there. I oh, love it. I try. <laughs> <laughs> Andrea, what about you? How can people keep up with what you're doing? I am on Instagram at Andrea Helene 3 and on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. And Gary, you've had another one of your uh, coach ease on to pimp your prowess as a coach, as an acting coach. So if there are listeners out there have a project, if they're about to audition for a Lodge von Trier film, how can uh, how can they get you to help them? Sure, they can get in touch with me at Pimp Your Coaching. <laughs> um, you can get in touch with me at Gary Condes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or better still, it'd be nice. I'm a bit old school. I like to receive emails. So get onto my website, have a look at my website, get on the contact page, and drop me an email. It'd be nice to hear from you. GaryCondes.com. It is indeed. Thank Thank you. <laughs> so once again, Stacey, thanks so much for joining us. It was really great to talk with you. No, thank you. To all of our listeners out there, we hope you stay safe and we hope you stay creative mm -hmm. and we look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks very much. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.